Dreams are as fragile as glass. Heroes, brittle as bone. All my life I dreamed about sitting down with the iconic American film director, William Friedkin, and asking him every question I've ever had about one of my favorite pictures, The French Connection. As fate would have it, Friedkin found me. When Night Stalker dropped on Netflix, Friedkin took to Twitter, calling it the best police procedural ever made. This is, of course, patent nonsense, because the master had already made that film several years before I was born. But along with being one of the great compliments I've ever received, it was, if not an invitation, then an opportunity. So I reached out to a hero of mine, praying my dream wouldn't shatter like glass. I didn't know what to expect, a veteran prize fighter in a lonely ring, or a wizard in his lair. When I arrived at his Bel Air estate, he was both and more, a visionary filmmaker and a brilliant raconteur with a precise memory and a flair for the vivid detail. So I promptly lost my mind and failed to record the first seven minutes of our interview. You'll have to imagine the unexpected origins of an American masterpiece, which I failed to capture. It begins, according to the master, with an undercooked script based on a miserably written book. But there's two cops and a hot hunch, and that's what the master played. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Billy Friedkin. I figured the only way we're gonna get this script is I'm going to have to sketch it out. Mm -hmm. And then when we cast the two leads, I'm going to do with them what I did myself. Send them out with Egan and Grasso so that they could pick up dialogue, scenes, attitudes, which is what they did. I sent them out for three or four months. And still, every studio turned it down. How good was the script at that point? So, like, there wasn't much of a script. Mm -hmm. But there was, I had recorded everything they said, all the dialogue. Every studio turned the movie down twice. Then we went, we went to 20th Century Fox, David Brown and Dick Zanuck, and they turned it down. But a few weeks later, we got a call from Dick Zanuck, who was the head of 20th Century Fox. And he said, I don't know what the hell you guys got here in this script. He said, it's kind of interesting. He said, I'm going to get fired over here in about six months. He was fired by his father, Daryl Zanuck. The legend. The legend of legends. Yeah. So he's on his way out. You he got said, a script? He said, I got, I got a million and a half dollars hidden away in a drawer over here. And if you guys can make this picture for a million and a half dollars, go ahead. He said, and I won't even be here to see it. I'll have to buy a ticket. And, and that's what happened. He was fired before we started. But we had this long conversation. We were talking about casting. And D'Antoni and I said, well, what about Paul Newman? He said, you'll never get Paul Newman. He said, uh, Newman's son died. He, I, he, might have committed suicide, I don't remember, but he died with a gun, and Newman didn't want to do anything like that. 
He said, you're not going to get a star. You got a million and a half dollars, and that's it. You don't need a star. He said that to us. So you don't need a star. You just need these two guys and everybody else to be right. They have to be right for the part. I don't give, I'm not going to sell it on anyone's name. We then went to Peter Boyle, right. who had made a film called Joe. Joe. Which made his which made his name, right? Joe yeah. comes out and he makes Boyle suddenly a hot ticket. Well he, Boyle played a guy who would go into all black bars with a baseball bat. It's called Joe, the movie, and he whacked guys out with a baseball bat. And uh, so we went to Peter Boyle and he said, uh, fellas, he said, I just wanna do romantic comedies for the rest of my career. You can imagine the image he must have had of himself. Yeah, he right? looked in the mirror and saw Cary Grant, and Mel Brooks saw young Frankenstein, and he was closer to young Frankenstein. But he turned it down, and I understand from this guy who's a close friend of mine who created and produced the show Everybody Loves Raymond, mm -hmm. and Boyle was on that, and Phil Rosenthal, who created the show, told me uh, that there wasn't a day on the set that he didn't collar somebody and tell him he turned down French Connection. And we saw a few other actors. Uh, I'm trying to think of Bill Devane was one. Mm -hmm. Robert Blake. Mm -hmm. Interesting. A uh, few other guys. And then there was this agent, a legendary agent named Sue Mengers. And she represented Gene Hackman. And she kept hocking me to use Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman, and I, he had never starred in a picture. Right. He was in Bonnie and Clyde. He played Warren Beatty's brother. brother. Yep. But he was good. And so we met him. We had lunch with him. And what's your impression? Like, so you sit down to lunch with Hackman. It was Somebody's boring. He was boring? Yeah, yeah, he was the most boring white man I've ever met. And uh, I thought, what the fuck is this? You know, uh, but he was the last man standing. So, 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 so slow, slow it down even further. So like you sit with Hackman, you know, you're like, this guy's fucking boring me to tears. Mm -hmm. Like, what are those conversations between you and D'Antoni where it's like, well, what the fuck, we got a million and a half dollars, we got a ticking clock, like... When we're going with hack, like how, how? What is that dialogue between you guys? Phil immediately said, "Let's do it. Let's make the fucking picture. We've been screwing around with it for two years." I said, "Phil, I I don't think this guy can cut it. I, I don't think he has the balls for this character. He's slow. He's sort of middle western gothic, and uh, I don't think so. And then one night." I was resisting it, and the clock was ticking, and Phil and I went to the policeman's ball. It was a Saturday night with Egan and Grasso, and I was sitting at this table all night, and I'm thinking, and Phil looked really sad, and he had backed me when none of the studios wanted me to direct the picture. He said, that's my guy. And he said... Uh, if we don't do it, Billy, we're dead. And I thought about it all night at the 
policeman's ball. And at the end, I put my arm around him and I said, Phil, okay, let's do this. I'll go with Hackman, but I think we're screwing ourselves. And that's how we went with Gene. The first day of shooting, mm -hmm. uh, I, I like to do one take. I don't believe in take two. I'll only take two, do take two, if a, a light falls in the shot or the camera tips over. Uh, I want spontaneity, you know, not perfection. I don't want it to come off like somebody rehearsed it. I want it to just happen. And um, that comes from the actor being inseparable from the part. So casting is 95% of my pictures. I had, I had cast Roy Scheider instantly. Roy Scheider came into my office. He, he had done only one film that hadn't come out. It was called Clute with Jane Fonda. And uh, he came into my office and I, I, he sat down and I never have an actor read. I think it's embarrassing. And, but we just talked and, and I said, what are you doing, Roy? And he said, uh, I'm doing this Jean Genet play downtown. I said, what part do you play? He said, I play a cigar smoking nun. <laughs> and I said, that's interesting. Okay, you got the part. He said, what? Uh, I said, yeah, you're perfect for this guy. He said, but you haven't heard me read. I said, there's nothing to read. These guys just grunt. They just grunt and beat guys up and knock around, hold court in the street. And um, there's nothing here to read. There's no speeches. You got the part. So I hired Scheider and I hired the young black man who's in the first scene, whose name is Alan Weeks. So, so it's interesting what you're saying, right? Which is there is this fundamental documentary technique which you're using or, or whatever you want to call it, improvisation from you knocking around with Egan and Grasso and sort of seeing what, how they live. You taking that material, verbally pitching it to different writers you're working with. These improvised scenes where you're auditioning Breslin. And are you then, like, is somebody recording the improvised dialogue? No. Or you, you're just kind of tracking it? No, and we're just out there doing, and I, doing it and I'm watching it. And I see what's happening. And at that point I learned quite a bit about directing. I learned that if you got the right guy in the cast, you can pull this off. If the guy is miscast, forget it. Nothing you can do. No, nothing. You're dead. And that's happened to me from time to time. Uh, but so the first day of shooting, by the way, we said we could make the film for a million and a half, uh, which in those days was not uh, either a high or low budget. It, today, it's the catering budget of right. most films. But back then, I mean, Bogdanovich had made uh, the last picture show for under a million dollars. And Coppola was making films for under a million dollars. So a budget of a million and a half was not horrendous. 
Um, and uh, but we had a budget of a million eight, but it included paying guys oh, a oh, reasonable I, salary. Right. We paid Hackman twenty five thousand dollars for the lead in that picture, and everybody else was below that. And after the film came out, was a smash hit. Uh, the new head of 20th Century Fox was a guy named Gordon Stahlberg. And uh, he called me up one day and he called Phil and he said, look, the picture's going through the roof. Can we give Hackman uh, another 25 grand? And I said, no, fuck him. Fuck that. You know, why give him? Well, he did a that good was his deal. deal. Yeah. Right. And uh, we wound up giving him another 25 grand. And I think for his next picture, he got 500 grand. He got paid. Day one working with Hackman, you guys show up on set. You're, you know, this is somebody that's kind of been forced on you, or at least not your first choice anymore. By far. So when you go to sit down and like work with this guy, do you, you don't, do you know how he works? What's day one with Hackman? Day one was the scene where the two cops capture the black kid they're chasing. Uh, and interrogate him physically. That was day one. By the way, the, the greatest criticism I ever heard of the French Connection was by Miles Davis, who was a good friend of mine. And I showed the picture to Miles, and his comment after he saw it was, Hey, Bill, how come two guys to chase one guy? And that was the greatest criticism I ever heard. It was spot on. And um, so uh, it was that scene. And, they, and I saw that scene maybe 50 times. And they always did it in a police car. Yeah. Where they would sit in the front seat. The two cops would flank the suspect in the middle. And they would throw non sequiturs at him. Have you ever picked your feet in Poughkeepsie? All that shit. The guy didn't know what they were talking about. But then the other guy would ask him a question about dealing nickel bags down the street. Uh, and uh, the first day, now I, I started to tell you, I'm a one-take guy. Mm -hmm. We did 36 takes of that scene. Hackman couldn't do it. Um, you're st or in the first time you stage it, you're staging it in the car? Yeah, the way I saw it. Right. And um, it was no good. And we all knew it was no good. And I showed it to Gene, the rushes, the next day. And I'm, I'm like shaky. I, I'm thinking, I've miscast this picture. And Gene saw it, and he knew it was no good, too. He quit. He quit the picture after the first day. Wow. And his agent, Sue Mengers, said, all right, Gene, that's fine. You now own the picture. I don't know how much money these guys have got in it already, but they're shooting. They've got a crew. They've you got just a cast. Right. You own the picture. So he came back. So how do you work with him? So you see those rushes, and it's like, this isn't working. Um, and why it didn't work was because... He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to play anything that had a, a, a scent of racism or 
you know, what what you could say the Eddie Egan character represented. He didn't want to do that. He came from a small down, town called Danville, Illinois, where they had a Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. And um, his father left when he was seven, and he was a little fucked up. So you knew he had the darkness and rage and like what he needed inside. Yeah. How, but how do you get him there? I decided, he was 10 years older than me, but I became his father. And I mean, I was a, a mean father. We do a scene where I'm just on a close-up of his hands where he had to go like this, just rub his hands together because we were shooting at the coldest winter in New York. And it was, it's still the coldest winter in New York when we shot The French Connection. And the crew had to go into a shoe store at one location Just to, get warm. to warm up between shots. The camera would freeze up, all kinds of bad shit. And he, he couldn't do the, the shot. So I would, I would, I would say, Gene, but, as I say, I treated him like an angry father, which I've never done with an actor since. And I would say to him, instead of cut or how about another one, let's try it again. I'd say, oh, no. Oh, Jesus. He'd do a take. I'd say, man, you better get a day job because you're not making it here. And he would get really pissed off. And I... And I'd get him to a point where he was pissed off at me. And then I'd say, okay, roll it. Let's do it again one more time. And bang, it came out. Mostly directed at me. And um, finally, he got into it. He did not want to play a racist, but he knew what I was going for. It was against his principles. But he... He got through it. If you look at what you can get on YouTube, his Academy Award speech, he says, I owe this to Bill Friedkin, who pulled me through when I wanted to quit. And that's true. Um, and so we finally got something that seemed usable. And I remember Phil saying to me, what do you think? And I said, Phil... I think we'll get away with this thing, but we're, don't get your Academy Award speech ready. And so he finally came through, but it was, as a film director, you assume an attitude toward every actor you work with. Everyone's on a different plane. You have to get on their plane to communicate them. With Linda Blair in The Exorcist, I became a surrogate father. I made the whole thing a game for her. I'd come in in the morning and say, uh, Linda, here's a dialogue today. You gotta say, uh, your mother sucks cocks in hell. And she said, oh, I can't say that. I said, oh yes, you can. You can do it. She said, oh, I don't think I can say that. And her mother was on the set all the time. Amazing. And her mother trusted me. I said, look, we're not gonna use your voice. But you have to mouth the word so I can dub it. And she said, I, this is dirty, isn't it, Billy? And I'd say, look, if you don't do it, Linda, you're not going to get a milkshake today. And that's how the whole thing was done. 
So what you're saying, I think, is like there's a mask that you are able to put on for every person that you're dealing with. Every yeah. actor may need a different, and you may have to wear a different mask with each one. Yeah. So you got to know which mask works with this person that presses. That's buttons. why I talk to them at great length before we ever shoot, and I don't rehearse. I don't believe in rehearsal. I rehearse The Exorcist upstairs at this restaurant called Alan Dick's that I told you about. It was The upstairs floor was empty. It used to be a speakeasy that was run by this famous woman who ran the most famous speakeasy in New York. Uh, her name was Texas Guinan. And this was Texas Guinan's speakeasy. And Alan Dick's guys were friends of mine and they let me use that room upstairs to rehearse. I rehearsed The Exorcist for about six weeks and then we set out to start shooting it and it was dead. It was rehearsed. It was dead. And I remember sitting the actors down and I said, forget everything we did if that's possible. We're going to do this fresh now on the sets or wherever we were shooting. Well, it was all shot on location, uh, except for the house. That was a set. And I said, forget everything we rehearsed. We're going to approach this fresh. And I'm going to let you say the words your own way. Forget the script. Do it the way you feel it. And they were a little dumbfounded, but I told them, I said, we rehearsed this damn thing, and it's dead. I, I don't want it rehearsed. I want it spontaneous. I'm more interested, as I say, in spontaneity. Okay, so there's a, there's a couple of interesting things going back to the French Connection for a second. The, like, you do these geographical jumps in the shooting of it where you may be running down a street in lower Manhattan and then, you know, suddenly you're in Bed-Stuy or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Have you mapped out, okay, I want the long shot where they're running toward me on this street because I like the looks of this. That's then all. Like, and, that's, and that's all. Yeah, that's all. No problem. You know, no strain. Uh, I made my own New York. There's shots in that chase with the car where it goes from Brooklyn to Queens to Coney Island, Lower Manhattan. I just made shots that I thought were compatible with each other. So you pre-scouted all those spots. With Fat Thomas, who was a character I met through Jimmy Breslin, who was a, a bookmaker in New York who had been arrested 52 times for bookkeeping with one conviction. But he knew, knew New York like the back of his hand. And he took me around. I didn't know New York that well then. But he took me to places and I, I would make notes. This place is great. That's great. We had no permissions to shoot on any street ever. We just fucking did it. We shot on those streets. So it's all just pedestrians and it's all passers? Whoever was going by. And you don't give a shit. It's like, it's real. I didn't give a fuck. And I wouldn't do that again, ever. Because people could have been hurt or died. Uh, I could have been hurt or died. 
I drove a couple of the shots because the, both the cameraman and the operator had families and I was single. And we just blew through 26 blocks of traffic under the L tracks uh, on the Coney Island line. Uh, I had permission to shoot on the elevator, elevated, but not on the streets. I just stole all the shots. And I had almost every cop in New York working for us. Because uh, you're juiced in with, with Egan and Grasso, yeah. so it's like, make a call. Right. And uh, if we got in trouble, somebody complained, another cop would show up and straighten it out. We, we, I staged a traffic jam on the Brooklyn Bridge, and I took this guy, Randy Jurgensen, who's still in, a very interesting guy. He's still in New York. He was 20 years a homicide detective, and he was at my side all the time. And I'd bring him over. We were standing on a bridge above the Brooklyn Bridge where traffic was running. And I'd say, Randy, come here. You see that bridge down there? Yeah, I said, he said, yeah. I said, in about a half hour, I'm going to be ready to shoot a traffic jam on that bridge. Are you ready? He said, I'll be ready. And he got a whole bunch of his cop friends. They drove up to the Brooklyn Bridge and parked. No shit. And created yeah. a traffic jam. Yeah. And police helicopters came over. It was reported there's a traffic jam on the Brooklyn Bridge. Why? Nobody knows. They came over with a chopper and landed. And Randy flashed his bad. He said, I'm on the job. We're doing Egan and Grasso's story. And they went away. But I didn't have permission to shoot one shot on the street. So it's again, it's the documentary thing. Like going, so you have this background. No, it's insanity. It's and it's it is it's insanity. Stupid. And you're well, but it but it's what it's one of the many things that gives it this vitality and this uh, credibility. Right? Yeah, but it it was, it was wrong. I know that it worked. Look, I think the chase is good, but. I wouldn't do that again. No way. When I shot the chase for To Live and Die in L.A., I had total permission to use the freeways, uh, the Long Beach Freeway. Uh, but we did get permission to shoot on the train. So go back to now setting up the car chase, right? So you know, and like even talk about the birth of the idea, which is like, okay, how do we make this? To, like, you don't want to do Bullet again because it's like no, I love Bullet. It was amazing. I, Bullet is the best detective film I've ever seen. I don't think the car chase is that great. All they did was take the cars and run them over streets and and. Close off the traffic, right. and uh, it was shot on the safe side, mm -hmm. and it's good, but it, it's not the best. But McQueen and I used to have a thing where we'd go to some party, and he was there, and I'd come in late, and he'd say, there's the guy that made the second best car chase ever shot, and I'd say, no, Steve, it's number one. <laughs> And Steve only made bullets so he could shoot that chase and have the best chase ever. And I, I loved Steve as an actor. It's amazing, everything he ever did. Oh, fuck. What a perfect film character. 
But anyway, I didn't want to duplicate Bullet. And we didn't have a chase. When I took the script to all these guys, there was no chase in it. You know? It's amazing because it's like it's so that it's so iconic. It's crazy. I, here's what I don't understand. Really, you're kind of making this fucking movie up as you're going. Yes. Using, and like to me, it's like astonishing that that's possible. It is possible. Not with every look. If I was doing Shakespeare or Harold Pinter as I did, I did a film of Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. I couldn't do it that way. That those things have to be word for word, because it's blank verse, Shakespeare's blank verse, and you don't want a guy out there improvising it. It's good enough. You're not going to beat the bard, right? No. So if I was doing something that had that kind of cachet, I would do it the way it needed to be done. But most of the films I've done that interested me are. You, you could say street pictures, mm -hmm. you know, just guys talking on the street or in a room. They don't know what they're going to say. Like, I don't know what I'm going to say to you. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the next word out of my mouth is. And if I had, if I rehearsed it, it would be rehearsed. I don't know what you're going to ask me. So right. I don't know what I'm going to answer. And that's how I want my pictures to, to be. Well, it's so acutely noticeable in the French Connection. It's so propulsive, where it's and I had and tell me if this is true too. And I because I it, it like it really struck me. The camera operator that you have, tell us about the camera operator. Why the choice of him? This is a guy that had shot the like Cuban Revolution, right? He's, he again shot, a documentary guy. He shot the Cuban Revolution at Castro's side, from the Sierra Maestre Mountains to Havana. He was there all the way with a camera in Fidel's face. And uh, he, when Fidel took over, he and many others in Cuba became disillusioned. And, and he left Cuba and came to the States. He went first to Florida where he was just shooting commercials. But then Owen Roisman, who was the director of photography, who had done nothing, uh, but I had seen some of his, he showed me his commercial reel. And I got him because I knew this guy who ran a company called General Camera in mm -hmm. New York, where we always used to rent the equipment from him. And I went, when I went back to, I had already made a couple of films in New York, and I wasn't crazy about any of the New York cinematographers. And I said to this guy who owned General Camera, his name is Dick DeBona. I said, Dick, uh, who's, who are some of the best young guys coming along? And he said, Owen Reisman. He's a young guy. Uh, he's never done a feature, but he's done really good commercial work. I said, set up a meeting for me. So Dick set up a meeting at General Camera with myself and Reisman. And Dick used to cook. He was a really good Italian cook. And he made us some pasta and a salad, and we're talking. And I told him about the French Connection. I liked him. He was about my age and uh, 30s. And uh, so uh, I told him, and I said, look, when we go out in the streets, no lights. I don't want to see a fucking light. I don't want to see a truck. I don't want to see any of that. 
when we go inside, I only want to use bounce light. I don't want any key lights on the interiors. You know, just get a few bounce lights, stick them against the corners of the room and reflect it off the ceiling so the scenes didn't look lit. You know, no shadows everywhere. And, and so he said, I love it. And I said, you better love it because if you fuck me and you start bringing in all this gear, you're fired. And he said, no, no, I'm with you. And he found Ricky Bravo to be the operator. And Ricky, we never laid a dolly track anywhere, ever. Ricky could handhold the camera and it was smooth. And I wasn't looking for shaky cam. I was looking for handheld, which is very, it's a very great technique when it's done by the right operator because it doesn't have to wobble and shake. Yeah, you don't have to put any mustard on the hot dog. It's like, it's alive. Yeah, but it, you know, it doesn't look preset like Lawrence of Arabia. Right. You know, it doesn't look bang. They've rehearsed this 50 times and now they're shooting it with a thousand extras and it's a neat, clean frame. Uh, and so uh, Ricky could do that. Uh, but I had a thing with Ricky. He was very funny. I said, Ricky, when you're shooting, never cut. Don't ever cut the camera. If, if a light falls in the shot, just keep shooting. And I'll tell you when to cut. And uh, so that, that was the, the deal we made. And then there came a scene where it got all screwed up and Ricky's still shooting and I'm watching it and I didn't say anything. And at the end of it, I said, Ricky, how was that? Because we didn't have monitors. No then. video assist, no, no you're no relying video. on your operator. Yeah. And I'd look through the camera first, give him the frames, but then it was his. Um, and I even did more than that. But uh, this one scene came up and it was the, the two guys in the scene crisscrossed each other and one blocked the other. And I said, Ricky, why didn't you cut the fucking camera? You, you shot several extra minutes of shit. And he said, you told me not to cut. Right. <laughs> he said, don't cut. So I don't cut. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, by and large, I mean, there's a shot he did. It's, it's in the subway station, and it shows uh, a guy coming, the, the French guy's coming down the steps, and Ricky was in a wheelchair. And we see this guy coming down the steps. We follow him across several pillars in the station. I got extras off the street. The, the production manager, who was a cheap son of a bitch, uh, you know, sent over about 20 extras for a subway train. I said, no. And I sent my AD up and I said, just round people up and ask them if they want to be in a movie. Wow. And, and we'll give them 20 bucks a piece for a, a few minutes work. And Ricky made this shot of them coming down a long flight of steps trapped across, I don't know, 30 or 40 feet. And then as Hackman 
were following Hackman into the train, and Ricky followed him right up and onto the train, and it's smooth as silk. And that's wheelchair dolly the whole time? Yeah. One take. And so, I mean, literally the framing and stuff, he's chasing, he's chasing the frame as the yeah. action's happening. Yeah. And a lot of the time, there are a lot of scenes, and I can point to them, where I wouldn't have uh, Ricky around during rehearsal. I would let Owen do the lighting if there was any to be done. And then after I staged it and Owen lit it, or like in the subway, we used no lights. Wow. In the station, not on top, in the station. And um, uh, I would stage the scene and Owen would light it. I'd show Owen where we were going to go. And then I'd bring Ricky in and, and say, just follow it. Shoot it like you're in the revolution. That's right. right. And he would say, but who I start with, where I go? I said, did you ask Castro where he was going before you roll the camera? Think of it that way. It's so alive. It's yeah. so alive that way. Yeah. I said, think of this as happening. I want people to look at this film like it's happening in f before their eyes, not like we rehearsed it or preset it. If there's a few mistakes and they're acceptable, that's it. Uh, it's amazing, and it's like that film is so influential for everything that has come out. Like that degree of lived-in reality, like it's like it's like you're creating. It's, it does feel like it's being born before your very eyes as you I watch wanted. it to this day, and it's amazing. So another striking thing I noticed uh, rewatching it again last night was. There's these scenes where you have Gene and Roy, and they're giving us, you know, backstory information on, okay, guys that are they're surveilling, right? And it's so interesting because it's almost the equivalent of voiceover, yeah. where you're getting all of the information that you need, but you're not even, you never even cut to the conversation, hardly, or maybe there's like one where you pull out at the end, and you're on the people that you're meeting. Yeah, and they're telling you about them. And and is that is that by design? You're yeah. never going to cover like we don't need the, we don't need the like two shot of Roy and Gene talking because we're going to be cut like in the edit we're going to be have seen on that. that they we know they're in back they're in a car looking back and seeing this stuff and so we hear their voices and they're giving us information about the people they see who are wrong guys you know. And they, they're talking about who in the hell they are, and you get the information as to why they're being surveilled that way. Because the dullest thing you could possibly shoot is a uh, police interrogation or surveillance. Police surveillance is like watching paint dry. It is as dull as it gets. So you got to do something to juice that up and get some information to the audience. But police surveillance takes days, weeks, months to arrive at anything. And I'm trying to Collapse telescope it. Yeah. It. yeah. Um, by the time you get into the edit, uh, because, I, I mean, this improvisatory style 
like, do you know, like, how the fuck is this going to all cut together? Is it going to work? Do I have the coverage I need? And, oh, like, I what, know that. You've got it in your head? I can't do it. I've made many films. And I can only make a film if I can see the whole thing in my mind's eye before I start. And is the film you shot the one you had in your mind's eye, or does yes. it change? The, the closest film, the, the, the film that came the closest to what I had envisioned was Sorcerer. And that's why I love the picture. Me too. Because uh, I saw it, and I was able to realize it. But as I saw it, a lot of the stuff I knew was not possible. It was going to take forever and break everybody's chops. And, um, but I think it came off, and I no other film I've made does it that completely. So is that, like, if the, is that the one that is dearest to your heart? I think so, if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you the bullshit answer that they're all my children or some... That's the children, that's the child you like best. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, Sorcerer works for me still. Mm -hmm. So, in, 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 I don't think it's a perfect movie. I mean, Citizen Kane is a perfect movie. Citizen Kane is the, the, is the Vermeer of movies. It's the Beethoven of movies. It's the Michelangelo of sculpture. And there's Citizen Kane, which is the most definitive film I've ever seen. And I must have seen it now maybe 500 times. And I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Every once in a while, I'll get an urge to look at it again. The whole thing. I know it by heart. But I can't believe what they've achieved there. Do you glean something different when you revisit, or is it just washing over and sort of appreciating? No, I see things I didn't see before. Great picture. It's, it's so great. I wanted to be a film director after I saw that film. I was about 20 years old. And before that, I had only seen what they call movies. You know, the Marx Brothers, you know, stupid stuff for kids and then a friend of mine who I, I whose opinion I really respected said there's a movie opening this was in 1955 he said there's a movie opening uh, at the Surf Theater in Chicago which was on Dearborn and Division on the near north side it's called Citizen Kane it's about 15 years old he said but you ought to see it I think you'll like it and you know, a light bulb went off. I went on a Saturday at noon, didn't know what I was going to see, and my mouth hung open. And I stayed for every show that day. Literally watched it all day long. All day. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The cinematography, the editing, the sound, the acting, the writing, perfection and different. There's no film like it. You can't even aspire to it. I don't know that anyone has ever tried. But that's the film where I said, I don't know what this is, but whatever that is, that's what I'd like to do. And my only goal, unstated at the time, but certainly in my mind's eye, was 
I want to one day make a movie that you could use in the same sentence as Citizen Kane. And I haven't done that. I haven't even come near it. And I'm afraid I'm going to take the last ride without ever getting near it. But I'm at peace with that because nobody can do that. The, the, it's a one-off. Wow. I mean, it's the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven. Who else can do that? Who else ever did that? I think of these guys sitting in a room somewhere writing rap, you know, or hip-hop or whatever, and selling millions of copies. And then I think of the Ninth Symphony. Impossible. Where did this come from? It, it comes from God. That's a gift, that picture. And it, it's influenced, I would think, millions of people as it has me. Yeah. I can still watch it and still marvel at it. Do you rewatch your own films? No. Like, is it... Because I see them maybe a couple of hundred times during the whole process, from watching dailies to mixing, to mixing the sound and color timing the picture and uh, um, all, all of the processes you go through, I do them all. And by that time, I've become very familiar with the picture, but it ain't Citizen Kane. And so I, I just watch it enough to put it out there as good as I think it can be, and then I'm done. I've been to screenings of my films, you know, to do a Q&A or something. And will you sit through it or do you... Do Sometimes, so I don't have to walk in when people are watching it. Sometimes I'll come early and talk to the people who are putting it on, the Academy or whoever, and, uh, and sometimes I'll watch it. Not often anymore. Like, by the time I finished, like, Night Stalker, I was, it's like PTSD. If it, even a frame comes on, I'm like, get it away from me. I don't want to, it's so much time and effort and blood that's poured into that's it. That's a great that job. You did a great job with that. What's capturing your attention now as, like... Only the documentaries that are streamed. The movie business right now is finished. Over. I have a friend who runs a studio. There are 30,000 screens in the United States now. And he says within two years, there'll be 800. Really? They're all going to streaming. Clint Eastwood's new movie is streaming. It opens next week. Everything is streaming. I, you know, they make one print, turn it over to whoever the streamers are, and... They're done. I miss it, though. It's like, that's church to me, you know, going and sitting in the theater. Like, I hate to see that disappear from... It has disappeared. I, I know. It's, it's, it's awful to me, because it's like, that, that was, that's a sacred place. And it, there is a, uh, an overwhelm to the medium when it's, like, that big, and you're in a dark room, and you're in a seat. Yeah. It's a different experience. But we're going through a pandemic, and you take your life into your hands to go see a movie it's a, or a Broadway play where you're sitting like this, squeezed next to the people next to you. Why are the documentaries capturing your attention now? They're good. It? 
They're just good. It's great stuff. And movies now, it seems to me, are just basically remakes of stuff. When's the last time you've seen Reseen the French Connection? What was the last? Oh, I just don't remember. Uh, maybe looking at a print in 2018. So, to, to sort of wrap toward the a end. Blu-ray. Is it? Uh, Tell the story about, because I think it's, you know, important for, I mean, this was an insane undertaking in so many regards. And, like, you're having to never say no or never fold the cards and always whatever is required. You know, traffic jams on the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, berating Hackman, whatever. By the time you finally get to the edit and the studio is sitting in and your, you know, initial screenings where... You know, it's like trade. You know, cut eight frames off here, cut twelve frames off here. What's oh, that experience? Well, I had that with French Connection. There was a guy called Elmo Williams who took over from Dick Zanuck when Dick was fired, and Elmo Williams was a film editor, rather famous. He had edited High Noon and uh, a, a bunch of films that Zanuck was famous for. And uh, he, when they fired Zanuck, they made him the head of the studio. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. And Phil and I had to show him the picture, and I said, we're going to learn something here, because this guy is one of the great editors. So we sit down to show him the picture, and the guy who took his job as head of editing was there, a guy called Sam Beatley, and uh, Sam Beatley fell asleep during the first screening of The French Connection, and uh, Elmo Williams sat through the whole screening with his assistant, a, a young woman, taking notes, and he was leaning over here talking to his assistant while the picture's playing, and at the end of the screening, we get these notes. In that scene where the guy walks in the room and says this to the other guy, take 12 frames off of that. Another scene, take eight frames. Add six frames. I'm listening to this stuff. I, I can't believe this. I, I'm in, in Wonderland. You can't do that with a picture. He didn't know the dailies. He didn't know that in the next frame of a picture... Some guy might have walked by and did that, seriously, on the street. And if he put it in the frame, there he is. Or more than that even, he would ruin the pace that I had set up. So he gave us a ton of these bullshit notes. And then he left for a week. Because he had another film, the only other film Fox had in production was called The Salzburg Connection, which was from a big bestseller. And uh, he was going over to Germany to look at the dailies of that. And he, when he came back the following week, he wanted to see these changes. And he left. And I'm sitting in the screening room with Phil D'Antoni. And he said, well, Jesus, what do you think? And I said, Phil, if I make one of these changes, it will ruin the picture. I mean, ruin it. 
I told him what I just said to you. Who knows what's in the next frame? I didn't cut the French connection to achieve that pace. I cut it because in the next frame it was unusable. The film was cut out of necessity. And if you shorten something, you destroy the rhythm that was set. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, Phil, I think you're the greatest bullshit artist I've ever met. When this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, he's a fake. He told us that he made High Noon, that Fred Zinnemann didn't know what he was doing. Fred Zinnemann was in love with Grace Kelly, and he shot most of the film on Grace Kelly, and Elmo had to cut all that shit out, and Elmo found the, the, went out and made shots of the tracks and shots of the clock and went out and found the music, which is iconic. And all, he said all that was him. And Fred Zinnemann was the director who was a kind of a master. And I said, this guy didn't make Fred Zinnemann's picture. He's a fucking liar. And I said, he said, well, what do we get? I said, Phil, when he comes back here next week, Go up and embrace him. Put your arms around him and say, thanks, Elmo, thank you. You saved our ass. And that's what we did. We didn't make one frame of change. Not one. And he, we ran the same picture for him. He's sitting there with the same assistant. And Sam Beatley <laughs> sleeping in the back. And he said, fixture's over. He said, well, those changes are good. You've made some significant changes. I said, that's it. We can go mix the fixture. He said, no, there's one more thing I want you to do. What's that? Put narration in it. I said, what? He said, put some narration in the pictures. I don't know what the hell they're doing. I don't understand the continuity. I said, well, who's the narrator? Who should be the narrator? He said, Go out and get Hackman. I said, who's going to write the narration? I don't know what you're talking about. I wouldn't know what to put in narration. And he said, well, he said, write what you think is okay, and then we'll go over it. It so happened that the week the French Connection opened, this guy, Gordon Stolberg, took over as the head of Fox over Elmo. And Gordon Stolberg had run CBS films before that, uh, and they made The Boys in the Band. Mm -hmm. So he was a friend. And I went to him and I told him what was happening. He said, okay, let me handle this. And so he, uh, Elmo, I get a phone call from a guy called Ted Soderberg, who was the mixer. He was a great mixer at Fox. He called me and he said, you won't believe this. Elmo has ordered the picture back in the mixing room next week. Pulling back in prints? Yeah, the prints are out there. Not a lot, but enough. They opened it as a double feature. It was a double feature on 42nd Street and a few other places. They had no idea what they had. They wanted to change the name of the movie. They wanted to call it Doyle, which is the name of the character, Popeye Doyle. And 
I thought, oh boy. And then they w wanted to call it Popeye. And I said to this guy, because that was his nickname, I said, you can't use Popeye. Don't you know there's a copyrighted cartoon strip called Popeye? And so they grudgingly kept the type, grudgingly, they hated it. They did surveys and they found out in the surveys a bunch of women in Ralph's or some grocery store. What is the name French Connection? What does that title mean to you? And what came back was a foreign movie, uh, a, a, a condom, uh, and, and something else stupid. And so they said, we got to change this name. So the chief stockholder in Fox then was a Broadway producer who was out of his fucking mind, but a brilliant producer named David Merrick. And I knew him. He was the largest stockholder in Fox then. And I said, look, if you do any of this shit, I'm going to go to David Merrick and I'm going to, he'll kick your ass because you're wrong on all this stuff. So now Elmo has booked the film back into the mixing room to be remixed. And uh, I tell this to Gordon and he called Elmo down to his office and I'm sitting there and he said, Elmo, you want to remix the French Connection? He said, yeah. And he, uh, he said, why? He said, some of it's too loud. Some of it's uh, too soft. Some of it's so fucking noisy, I can't even hear it. And Gordon, to his eternal credit, said, you know what, Elmo? It's out there in theaters now in a lousy release. And it's doing huge business. I think I'd rather spend the money on more ads and getting more theaters. And, and Elmo said, that's not what Daryl would do. And Gordon said, I'm not Daryl. Nobody's Daryl. That's what I want to do. And that's what he did. And Elmo was a memory. When did you know it was going to hit? Uh, after it opened. And I went to some black theaters and watched it with a black audience. And they were cheering when the cops beat up black people. They were cheering because it was a real depiction of how the cops had treated them at that time. And so they loved it. And everywhere I went to check it out, it had a great response. So I thought this is going to work. And then on the day that, like, you know, this crazy unlikely journey of this film landing where it does, when you're finally standing there at the Dorothy Chandler, you know, and you've got the Oscar in your hand, like, what's running through your head? It was the saddest day of my life because I didn't think it was good enough. I didn't think it was the best I could do. And here it's winning the major prizes of the American film industry for me and Hackman and Phil and the editor, Jerry Greenberg. And I thought, this is not that good. It's okay. It's an okay cop film. It's not Bullet. It's okay. 
and I'm winning the Academy Award. And it's the only, the day after, I'm in a real funk. And my business manager at the time, he said, you, gotta, you better see a psychiatrist. This should be the happiest day of your life. And I had never been in psychiatry. I didn't know what it was. But I went to this highly recommended psychiatrist, and I sat at the desk opposite him, and he said, tell me about yourself and about what's bothering you. And he had a yellow pad. And while I'm talking, he's writing everything down. He doesn't look at me. I'm talking, and I'm, I'm thinking, this guy's a stranger. Why am I going to tell this motherfucker anything about myself? How, and how can he help me? His life has no relation to mine. And uh, uh, I never went back. I just began to live with it. And a guy I worked with at Walper, because I came out here to do documentaries for the David Walper Company and the ABC Network. And he was the biggest producer of documentaries at the time. But a guy I worked with there called Mel Stewart, who was a terrific documentary filmmaker then. He did The Making of the President, 1960 and 64, and Wall Street, and great stuff. And he called me <laughs> that second morning, and he said, well, you fooled him again, huh, asshole? <laughs> and that woke me up. Yeah, I fooled him again. Thank you to Billy Friedkin for creating the first of several masterpieces. And thank you to Fidel for lending him your cameraman for the affair. And thank you to Gene Hackman for inhabiting the part of Popeye Doyle. Have us back, Billy. We want to talk about The Exorcist and Sorcerer and whatever else you've got coming down the pike. And though it wasn't a doc at all, I remain Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound mix and editing are by Joel Edinburgh. Music by Zydepunk. This show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe.